You are now listening to the December 29th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, and you are listening to another program in our series, The Attributes of God. Over the past several weeks, we have studied 12 incommunicable attributes of God, attributes that are His only. In the weeks to come, we will be learning 13 communicable attributes of His that He has chosen to share with us. And today, we are starting with the attribute of love. God is love, and so many of his other attributes reflect this love. But first, we need to define the word love. In English, love can mean many things. For example, I can say, I love my sister, or I love my husband, or I love dogs. But in the days of the early church, In the Greek language, they had different words for different types of love, like friendly love, sexual love, and family love. But the love that God gives to us that we in turn give to others is agape, which means unconditional love, a love that accepts a person just as they are with all their faults, and if they hurt our feelings, whether intentionally or not, we still love them. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, John writes, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. This is proof of God's love for us. Then John goes on and says in verse 11, Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So as God pours his unconditional love in us, we in turn pour that love into others. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In Mark chapter 12, a scribe asked Jesus, What commandment is the foremost of all? And in verses 30 and 31, Jesus answers him, saying, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Because of human rebellion and sin, God could justly judge us and condemn us. Yet because of his unconditional love, God has extended his grace and forgiveness to us. Therefore, as we interact with other people in our lives, we too need to extend grace and forgiveness to others because of love. In closing our program for today, 
I want to leave you with the words of John from John's first letter in chapter 4, verses 16 through 19 and verse 21. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. May the love of God fill you to overflowing where you can't help but share it with others. May the love of God fill you to overflowing where you can't help but share it with others. God bless you all, and goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph 
and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Well, last week we heard a great conversation on three things. Number one, why running from your identity is a race you'll never win. We talked about why God wants you to be yourself. And the reason for that is because everyone else is taken. And number three, we asked the three questions that truly matter about identity. And on today's podcast, we're going to learn several different things. Number one, how the judgments we make about ourselves, the generalizations about others, and the vows that we state have an emotional and spiritual impact on us. Number two, we're going to talk about how to deal with these judgments, these generalizations, and these vows from a biblical perspective. All this material today that we are discussing comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delf, are the authors of this book, and this podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. You know, one of the things I think it would be great to talk about is in Chapter 7, we talk about judgments and generalizations and vows. Oh, my. (laughs) We sort of took that from the Wizard of Oz. But uh, this is attributed to Frank Outlaw, but I've heard it in, in Navigators and a few other places. Watch your thoughts. They become words. Watch your words. They become actions. Watch your actions. They become habits. Watch your habits. They become character. Watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Um, So what is going on in the self-talk of our life on a daily basis? And we better be watching out what we think because what we think is going to be what we do pretty soon, which will be a life. And um, I just think of the scripture, you know, bad company corrupts good morals, but the opposite is true. When I'm hanging around Christians who love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, I get raised up into wanting to be obedient, wanting to cling to the truth and trust God and not believe the judgments I have on a father who didn't treat me right, the uh, generalization that since he hurt me, I'm never going to trust anybody. And like we said in another podcast, we talked about, you know, I trust no one and no one trusts me. I'm an island. And that's not the way God made us to be. And then we make vows. I remember as a little kid in Hebrew school, you know, my dad didn't, he sent me to religious school, but he didn't go to temple. And I'm going, okay. I remember distinctly being in the car, being led out to religious school, and he's going to play golf. And I'm thinking, if that's what he thinks, I made a vow. I'm never going to do this thing again. And when I get old enough, because right now I can't choose, right now God is telling me I have to go to temple. But when I got old enough, I fulfilled that vow until somebody came to me and said, Alan, Jesus can change your life. And for some reason, God spoke and I believed. So how important, Alan, I mean, in your counseling, how many times have you heard men 
say, well, you know what? I, I told myself growing up that I never wanted to be like my dad mm-hmm. or a woman say, I, I didn't want to be like my mom or, or right. you know, have you heard that like a gazillion oh, times? Yes. So and what does that do to us right. when we say something like that? What I tell people is you are meditating on the wrong thing. You are, you're making a vow that one, you cannot keep because what you say you're against is what you'll be just like. And so you become what you keep saying, I don't want to be, I don't want to be. And that's why we need to fill our mind with the truth of who we are in Christ rather who we, than who we aren't. It would be much better for us as Christians to be known for what we're for, for goodness, mercy, truth, justice, grace, and love. First Corinthians 13, he says, faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. And so why not permeate our mind and our life and even our thoughts? But in order to get there, I have to renounce the vows Take authority in Jesus' name, who by his blood uh, died on a cross, gave us resurrection power to be able to overcome not only the enemy of our soul, Satan, the liar, but he also gave us the power to overcome habits, hurts, hang-ups, all the judgments and vows. But we, like Amanda, need to take responsibility and say, And sometimes I say this to people, I want you to say, I can speak this over you. And sometimes God heals people by me proclaiming the word of God and the truth over them. But most of the time, I find when they confess with their mouth and they renounce those vows and those judgments they've made, it breaks power just by if you confess your sin, he says, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you, not from some, not from part, all unrighteousness. I can't believe that's a promise that God gives us. What a great thing. <laughs> well, I mean, that just ties in with what we've been saying about how we have to take responsibility for slaying our own dragons. When we confess our sin, that's exactly what we're doing. We are taking responsibility and saying, I was wrong. But sometimes it's so easy and lazy and sloppy (laughs) to maintain the old way of thinking and to just make an excuse about my dad was like this, and so I can't help but be like this. Or my husband said this to me, and he's done this to me, and so I am justified in maintaining this opinion or being bitter and angry and um, withholding sex or love or whatever it is that I know that he needs and desires from me, and I choose to withhold that as a way of getting back to him. Well, that's the liar's way. That's Satan's way. It's so uncreative because we're we're just doing the same thing over and over again. God is so much more creative. He gives us his word that enlightens us and allows fresh and new thoughts and ways of reflecting him into our lives and of expressing his love to others in very creative ways. Polly, in the, in the last few minutes here on this show, what is it that women, specifically young women, when it comes to identity and these vows, 
What have you heard? What have you experienced yourself? Some of the things that you've said to yourself over and over, what's the younger generation telling themselves over and over? I mean, you mentioned beauty and going shopping and just, you know, I like what, what Ed mentioned here. You know, there's always going to be somebody prettier. There's always going to be somebody mm-hmm. more athletic. And <laughs> in, in my case, there's going to be someone taller and better that looking has and more hair. Hair, have hair. Well, and, I think, you know, of... all those wonderful things. Some guys have all the luck. <laughs> I know. I, we, we got left out. I think of, of the generation of women coming up as kind of the Pinterest generation. You know, they're looking on Pinterest for their ideals, for how to have the best birthday party for their kids (laughs) and how to get ideas for how to make costumes for their kids. And and it has to be so great. And, And if you can't do it the way it's all enacted on the Pinterest pages, then then you're you're just not really So perfection is one. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's, perfection, and it's I think what society—it's it, the norm becomes what society says the norm is, rather than God's truth. And because mm-hmm. it's said on Facebook so much, because it's texted, because it's on TV or computer, because I don't think this generation watches TV; they just watch their computer, which is the same thing as a TV, but it's just smaller. Um, but it's. The liar perpetuates his truth through this medium, which looks so real, but it's really, it's like an oasis, uh, like a mirage. It's, we think it's real because it looks so real on the computer and, um, and everyone's doing it. Well, we That's see on Instagram and on Facebook, our friends are are smiling and their kids are so perfect and everybody is they're dressed so beautifully and they're out doing fun things at the zoo and at the park and at the museum and on vacation at Lake Tahoe and in San Diego and and all these great places and the reality for me is I never go anywhere I never get to do all of those things and and there are dishes in my sink and my counter is dirty and I don't know what to do with all my papers and you know it's the same stuff that women have dealt with through the ages that they're I used well, to work less for than somebody who when company would come she would shove all of her dirty dishes and counter mess <laughs> and the into oven. the oven. She <laughs> would, <laughs> and her people would come in, and her house would look perfect, but they didn't know. Behind the was, cupboards, what, behind what, the oven what was, was it, what was in too, her man. oven. <laughs> See again, when you got people hiding, there's all they're always ashamed. Goes back to the garden, and it's this. I, I wrote something on my Facebook. I thought you might like it here, Dustin. It uh, everyone said I do something a little weird, and it's this, this, this <laughs> about aha about Facebook. Okay. Don't compare yourself with others on Facebook. Many get depressed when they compare their life with others. Understand that they, like you, are usually sharing an occasional high spot in their life, which makes us think their high spot is their whole life. What we really have on Facebook is a bunch of Barney Fife's, like me, coming across to others like Braveheart. Okay. <laughs> and that's, that's really so true. So this, th- th- You know why they hide? Because they can't manage the gap between where they want to be on Pinterest and where they are in reality. Mm. And so we pretend 
and that we hide. And then there's this gap between reality and oh, yeah. and where they are, and and that creates all kinds of interesting uh, things in an attempt to try and get up to that. And it's just your soul is not going to be prospering when you do that. It's just <laughs> not. You know, the word that comes to mind is affirmation. We want so much affirmation. We want to be told, you're okay just the way you are. You're just fine. You're totally acceptable. I love you just the way you are. And when we start comparing ourselves to other women and to to a fantasy that we see online, uh, we're just setting ourselves up for unhappiness well, and one of the greatest things for me when I first came to know the Lord was to realize He did accept me just the way I was, even though I am. I have so many weaknesses, just ask my wife, and so many things that I can't do and don't do, etc. And um, the, the idea that I gave it my best, but I didn't meet the standard that my dad or my mom had for me, for the first time when I came to know the Lord, I just realized God accepts me the way I am, but he won't let me stay the way I am. He wants me to become his best man, not what I think it is, not what the world thinks it is. In the world, you know, um, be in the world, but not of it. And I, I just think uh, the freedom of forgiveness, the freedom of I have made you a certain way, and don't worry about the rest of the people that are putting this pressure on you. Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delf at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session, a one-on-one -on -one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is God's Book. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Now, if you'll go to the page between the Old and New Testament, would you go to that page? I've always been interested 
in that page. I'm going to preach on that page. Isn't that cool? You can preach anything you want, and you can still say it's in the Bible, right? Just be ready. Just be ready there. You know, God and I have something in common. How do you like that? We both like books. We do. We both like books. I have quite a collection of books. Anybody who knows me knows that's an understatement, actually. My library is huge. I'm now in the process of giving a lot of my library to Mission Bible Institute, and they don't have room for all the books that I'm giving to them, so they're, you know, they're having to increase their space. Uh, but, I mean, I have books. I, you know, we're not just talking about popular stuff. I've got books that go back to the 1500s and a little beyond, so I'm in their Beautiful. Oh, look, look at me talking about my books. God loves books too. In fact, he's a very prolific writer, isn't he? And uh, I want to, I know we know a lot of his books and we've read a lot of his books. Uh, books that he's written that are included in this library. The Bible is like a library. We're familiar with them, but today I'm not thinking of the common ones that we usually take off the shelf and read. I want us to take a look at some of the books that maybe we've never seen before. So that's what I want to do. Now, this might seem kind of off the wall, but believe me, I do have a purpose. But it's not so random. What do you think about eavesdroppers? What do you think about that? What do you think? Well, Leslie and I were at one of those cafeteria-style restaurants. I don't want to name, you know, a restaurant, but we were at one of those restaurants, and we don't go often because I'm a germaphobe, (laughs) and I just, I have such a a hard time with somebody sneezing in their hand and taking hold of the the serving utensil, and then I come along, and I'm Purelling all the time. I'm just, you know, I'm just, if you go too far with this, you'd never eat anywhere, I suppose, but I was, we were sitting down, and you know, the, the table, the seating was tight, and so about four feet from me, I couldn't help but hear, I overheard this lady saying to her husband, she says, yeah, you know, that, I, that little boy over there, yeah, well, he dropped a cookie over by the dessert section where you know you spend most of your time when you go to one of these places. <laughs> Yeah, over there he dropped a chocolate chip cookie and uh, he picked it up with the tongs. And then he put the tongs back and I'm going, oh Lord, I actually had a word of knowledge not to get a cookie. I almost picked up a chocolate chip cookie and something told me no. God is at that dessert section. But I rest, germaphobe, I rest my point, people, right? Eavesdropping wasn't so bad, was it? <laughs> well, you know, that, that word fascinated me. Eavesdropping, what does it mean? I mean, how many of you know what it means? You know? So what happened, put your hands down back there, you're thinking, you know, <laughs> there's always one. I knew you would be here. I did. So, so here we are. I'm thinking, what does it mean? And I do a little research. And, you know, in old days, even today, the, the water drips off your eaves, right? 
And it it's drops off as close to your house as are the eaves. And in the ancient days, there had to be, you know, at least a couple feet between the eaves so there could be some dry area. But if you stood so close to the house that you were in between the eaves and the wall of the house, you could listen and hear the conversation inside the house. Thus, you were an eavesdropper. Is that cool? Wow, we learned something in church that had nothing to do with Jesus, but wow, that is so cool. It's like Wikipedia at Calvary. Did you know that God eavesdrops? I can confirm that by taking the first book off the shelf, and I want you to look at Malachi chapter 3, and look at verses 16 and 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So they're having conversations between themselves about the Lord. The Lord paid attention and what, gang? Heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before uh, him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. I call this book God's Diary. We're pulling God's Diary off the shelf, and we're looking at it. God has a diary. It's called the Book of Remembrances, right? And every time you talk about Jesus, God overhears. He eavesdrops. And he hears what you're saying, and he writes it down. Is that cool? Every time you've ever talked about the Lord, every time you've ever encouraged somebody, God overhears, and God writes it down. He's got a diary, and he writes it down. And the Lord is so happy about that that what does he do? He says, you will be my treasured possession, could be uh, called my jewel, when I come to pick up you know, my people, in other words, we are precious to God, as precious as jewels might be. People sometimes say, well, in heaven, well, I have a jewel in my crown. My thought is, I want to be a jewel in his crown. How about you guys? Well, I don't care if I get crowns or not. You know what? It will matter in heaven. I want more than one. And the Bible says you can have more than one. Why do you want more than one? So I can go in my closet in the morning and try to figure out which one to wear? No. I want more than one because there's going to be worship in heaven. We're going to go worship God, and when we go to worship God, there comes a time, yeah, when we're standing, we're lifting our hands and praising God, we're kneeling before God, we're on our faces before God, and then there is a time during the service, book of Revelation says, when we will cast our thrones, so be an offering, and we will give something to God, we'll give him our crowns. Some people are going to have Burger King crowns because <laughs> they haven't lived for the Lord because it's part of reward. It's part of reward. So anyway, that, that's a side, uh, kind of a side. But here is God's diary. Every word you say about him, every little Bible discussion and talking about the Lord, it's written in his diary. God sees it. He listens to it. The second book we should take off the shelf is what I call the Book of Tears. So if you're going through God's library, we're looking at this library, oh, this one looks interesting, and we pull it off, and it's called the Book of Tears. 
Look at Psalm chapter 56. You'll go to the left, book of Psalms chapter 56, and look at verse 8. David writes, You have kept count of my tossings. It's translated wanderings in some. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The New Living Translation says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one, each tear, in the book. God has a book of tears. Uh, The context of this is kind of interesting. David is running for his life. Saul is hot on his trail. And David has to run to Gath. (laughs) And you know, who, who did he kill, the big dude? He was Goliath from Gath. So he is not, you know, they are not friendly toward David. But he just, I don't know. He runs to Gath, then he realizes, uh-oh, they, they bring David in and they say, we have David, let's take care of him. So what does he do? I mean, he, he did the craziest thing. Literally, he acted crazy. He started just spazzing out, drilling down his beard. He acted crazy. And he figured that if they thought he was crazy, they weren't going to kill him, and they didn't. It worked. It's interesting way to trust the Lord, huh? He went crazy. But he gets, he gets afraid, you know. And uh, maybe you're living somewhere between fear and faith. Maybe in your life, uh, you know, there are, there are tears of just, God, I don't, I'm afraid. And David mentions that when he says, uh, going on to verse 10, he says, In God I, whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, verse 11 is where I hit it. In God I what? Trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Hey, hold on to that one, huh? In God I trust. Why should I be afraid? What can man do to me? I learned it when I grew up. What can mere mortals do to me? God takes notice of every one of your tears. You hear that? Not only does he take notice, God records every single tear. One, and and that's important. You know, some of us have heard when we grew up, now don't cry, now don't cry, stop crying. Why do we say that? Why do we say that? I don't know why we say that. Boys don't cry, real men don't cry. No, we just go to the movies and we suck it up. Now, <laughs> you know, you've been there, guys. There's some very, uh, some place in the movie that's like, oh, you know, we're like, <clears throat> oh, dust on the seat. <coughs> you know, come on. I know real men don't cry. None of us are real men, you know, because we all do now and then. God writes down every tear. And, you know, if you've ever cried, you're able to help someone who is crying. One hymn writer wrote, the tearless dry no tears. Those who have never cried don't understand how to comfort others. Here's Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this verse. He says, you have kept track of every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. Each tear entered in your ledger, each ache written in your book. God notices all our wanderings. He notices our tossings. He sees every tyranny, writes them in his book. Now, there's 
It's interesting, yes, he writes them in his book, but where does he store them? Look at your, at your verse. Where does he store them? In his what? You're okay. You're seeing it right. In his bottle. It's in his bottle. What is this all about? God has a bottle? Yeah, he has a lot of them. And this is referring to what in ancient days for thousands and thousands of years women did was they would catch their tears in a little bottle. It was called a tear bottle. I have one, I have actually several, 2,000-year-old excavated uh, right uh, in the Tower of David, right in that area in Jerusalem. Uh, and they're, they're little bottles. The bottom is kind of big. The, the stem is narrow. And, but at, there's a big flared top. And the tears would be caught, and they would run down into the bottle, and it would be stopped up. And those bottles represented the whole of life. Your joys, your sorrows, your hopes, the things that touched your heart. And all of those things would be caught. And so you would have a bottle of tears. And, by the way, women would usually give that to their husbands as their most precious gift when they married. Here's my life. Hey, which gives you an insight into Mary washing Jesus' feet with her what? Tears. Tears. She poured out. Pouring out on Jesus her whole life. All right. So God has a tear bottle. One has got your name and your name and your name and your name and your name. And you know what I think? I'm just now kind of using sanctified imagination. But this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking at this point that in heaven it says there will be no more tears. I don't know that God will get rid of the tear bottles, but there won't be any additions in them, you know? Maybe they'll be there in heaven. And God will just say, look at all the things that you went through. It's done. It's finished. The bottles may be still there. But God says, look, through all that you went through, I brought you here safely. But God has this bottle. No tear of a child of God goes unnoticed or forgotten, G. Campbell Morgan says. J.I. Packer said this so well in his book, Knowing God. Guys, if you haven't read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, get it and read it. It's like, oh, awesome. But let let me read you a little bit of a lengthy paragraph that he writes. I'll try to pause now and then for things to sink in. He says, what matters supremely in the end is not that I know God, but the larger fact that lies beneath it that God knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. I know him because he first knew me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there's no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me in love. There, this is what I love. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, and that no discovery can now disillusion him about me and quench his determination to bless me. Is that amazing? God's love is realistic. It's based on 
the knowledge he has of your worst. And based on that knowledge, he says, God is never disillusioned in you. People may be, but God is not. Somebody say amen. Amen. You know, another book that, that I want to pull off the shelf is, as we're, we're looking, we're, hmm, no, this book, this book is interesting, it's called The Book of Days. And if you go to Psalm 139, we'll see this book, get introduced to it. Interesting books that aren't included in the Bible, but we're told about. They are in God's library. In Psalm 139, verse 16, David says, you, Your eyes saw my, un, my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. The New Living Translation says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before there was a single day that had passed. In this book, the book of days, God records every day of my life. Someone has said, God is a know-it-all God. That is true, isn't it? It's certainly true when it comes to knowing the future. You might say, well, are you saying that God knows when every person is going to die? Or is that left up to chance? I think it's a great question. When we die, is not a matter of accident or chance. The Bible makes it clear that our lives are in God's hands. He knows the time of our death and he has even appointed it. Job said... In Job 14, 5, you have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live, and we are not given a minute longer. (laughs) That's going to, oh, really? A Jewish proverb says, every man knows he will die, but no one wants to believe it. But here are the statistics. The chances of you winning the state lottery are one in four million. The chance that you are going to eventually die are one in one. Those are the stats. Nothing is so certain as death. A guy named Alex was very troubled. He went to see uh, because of, he had this premonition that he was going to die. And it was just bothering so much that he went to a psychiatrist. And he went to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist says, what's going on? And he says, well, doctor, I'm just feeling like I have the strongest premonition that I am going to die. I need your help. I don't think I'm going to live much longer. And doc, the psychiatrist replied, well, the first thing I want you to do is pay me in advance. <laughs> Oh, thank you. But seriously, someday you will die. Someday I will die. And the real question is, are we prepared for that day? That's the real question. As we look at the book of days, are we ready? We can be by giving our lives to Jesus Christ who will forgive us our sins if we ask him and give us eternal life. And the question is, have you made that commitment to Christ? The Bible says it's appointed for people once to die, and after that comes the judgment. King Solomon very wisely said, 
Listen, it's better to spend your time at funerals than at festivals. It's better to go to funerals and parties, he says. I'm scratching my head right now. I'm saying, why? What? He continues, for you are going to die, and it's a good thing to think about it while there is still time. Is that choice? It is better to spend your time at funerals than at festivals, so you are going to die. And it's a good thing to think about it while there is still time. There's still time. If you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, there's still time, as long as you're alive. So Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days, that we may have a heart of wisdom. So what's the right thing to do in, in view of eternity? And looking at God's book of days, is your name in the book of days? Or your name is in the book of days? How many days are left? I have no clue. I don't know for me. I don't know for you. God knows. But in light that he does have a book of days, I would think about these things. Have a heart of wisdom. Now, of these books, these books that we've pulled off his shelf, which is the most important? I mean, I was thinking, which is the most important of all these books? And then I'm thinking, actually, it's none of the ones that we've looked at. None of these is the most important book. It's an entirely different book, and it's the book of life. And this is spoken about, it's like, this is the last book God wants you to know. This is the last book God wants to really have you uh, pay attention to. And this is a, spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And it, the, the context here is the, the wicked of all the world are summoned before God. They're going to stand before the great white throne of God. And this is the judgment when people will be sentenced to hell for eternity if they have not accepted the Lord. I mean, that's just being blunt, and, and that's the context. Now, there's only one way that that won't happen. And look at Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book opened, which is the what? Book of Life. Now look at chapter 21, verse 27. Turn the page. 21, 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter into, that's a city, New Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written where? In the Lamb's book of life. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 says, And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is the most important book. Your name has got to be written in the book of life. Now, this sometimes another place the Bible says that the wicked, their name is blotted out of the book of life. People get all confused. Well, is it written or is it blotted out? Does that mean it wasn't written? Listen, this is the way it is. Everyone, this is what I believe, everyone's name is written in the book of life. God didn't say, oh, I got this book of life. I'm going to, I want your name, not you. I want you and you. I'm not so sure about you right now. You know, it's not that way. I believe everybody's 
name is written in the book of life. But then Leslie and I, we were we decided we wanted to go somewhere overnight in, uh, out of town. And so I made a reservation. And my name is now written on a reservation. And I made a reservation for a restaurant. We're going to spend the night. So for a room and for a, for a, a meal. I made a reservation. Now... What's going to be important for me to do to confirm my reservation? Is that right? That's important to do. Now, it's that way with salvation. Your name is there, but if you do not confirm it and by accepting Jesus Christ, your name will be blotted out of the book of life. Your reservation is canceled and you won't go to heaven. That's the bottom line. Does that make sense to everybody? God is not unjust. God didn't say, well, he never wrote mine in. I didn't have a chance. No, everybody's there. And it's up to you when you hear the word of the gospel to decide, I'm going to confirm that. I confirm that. Thank you, God, that you wrote me in the book of life. That's the most important book. And we understand all the other books in the light of this book of life. Your name, oh, your name has to be written there. Do you understand your eternity depends on your confirmation of what is in that book of life. And my sincere prayer for everyone hearing this, everybody watching this, everybody in the rooms, is that you would know for sure that your name is confirmed in that book of life. And in view of that, I want to pray. I want to pray for us all. Lord, we thank you so very much that our names are written in the book of life, but we understand that they have to be confirmed, and that means making a conscious decision, an act of our, our will to accept you, Lord Jesus, in our lives, to ask for your forgiveness, to come to the place where we understand that we, we need a Savior. We are sinful. We cannot get into heaven. The wages of sin is death. But your free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And you said, whoever will come to me, let them come. Let them drink of the water of life freely. You said you wouldn't cast out anybody who comes to you. I know there are people here who have not confirmed the reservation that has been made for them in heaven. And Lord, we don't know how many days we have left. How many days are in that book of days? It might be the last time we'll have that opportunity. Lord, in view of what we know, I pray now that very important strategic decisions would be made in Jesus' name.
ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.